Good morning. It's a Wednesday. It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 1019 FM in Manchester and beyond, and streaming worldwide, around the clock, at nhtalkradio.com. And because we haven't really had a whole lot of it uh, during these summer months, uh, we have decided to talk about water today, and specifically the Merrimack River. And uh, joining us is Ted Deers. Ted is the Assistant Director of the Water Division at the New Hampshire Department of Environmental Services. And Ted, uh, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Good morning, Ken. Great to be here. Well, and uh, we appreciate you getting up early in the morning. I'm sure you're accustomed to it. <laughs> and uh, so, Ted, you, you you told me off the air that uh, your fascination with water beca- began, I should say, in a place that didn't have much of it. Right. Correct. Yeah, well, growing up in the uh, the dry uh, southwest. Uh, one uh, comes to appreciate green trees and uh, and fresh water and cold water and and uh, began uh, sort of a lifelong fascination. And uh, what what brought you to New Hampshire? I came to uh, to do graduate school in Connecticut mm-hmm. and then uh, gradually worked my way north uh, to New Hampshire. Uh, met uh, my wife and uh, we've been here since uh, you know 1990. And uh, you have a particular fascination with the mighty Merrimack River. Absolutely. I've been uh, a part of uh, uh, talking about it, advocating for it, trying to protect it, regulate it uh, for almost 30 years now. And uh, it's been an exciting trip uh, through this, this, little, this little tiny piece of the Merrimack's history. Yeah, and uh, of course it's a great natural resource uh, for New Hampshire. And as we were talking off the air, uh, you know, Manchester, I'm sure, would not have been the mill town that it was uh, back in the day, nor Concord, uh, without uh, the Merrimack River. Absolutely. You know, when you think about the Merrimack starts uh, out of the Winnipesaukee and the Pemigewasset. Uh, Lake Winnipesaukee is Lake Winnipesaukee uh, so that they could provide water down to the mills in Lowell. That's why they built it. The Boston Company built it. So we run those dams today uh, for power and for enjoyment, and they feed uh, the Merrimack all the way through. Um, and, and we're not the first people to enjoy this. Uh, this, uh, this river is a place where people have lived for thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, here on, uh, we're on borrowed land, I guess. Um, the people who, who farmed and fished, um, and were part of this landscape, uh, for the very same reasons we love it. Yeah, absolutely so. And, uh, so it starts, uh, in the lakes region, Lake Winnipesaukee, and uh, goes into Massachusetts. How far down uh, in Massachusetts does it go? Drops into the ocean at Salisbury and Newburyport, which is a great uh, little estuary there. Joppa Flats, um, really cool place. Plum Island, people are familiar with, is a birding mecca. Also tends to be a place that's uh, falling into the ocean these days. But yes, uh, it's it's a big river, covers almost a quarter of the state uh, with its watershed. So we alluded to the uh, the drought conditions that we've had in, in many parts of the state uh, during the summer of uh, very little rain uh, up until a day or two ago, uh, which probably didn't make too much of an impact anyway. But uh, I guess anything is is uh, you know wanted at this point. Uh, so uh, what impact uh, has the drought had on the Merrimack River? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that's really fortunate about the Merrimack is that it is so large and has such a large uh, watershed area. 
And, you know, New Hampshire is a pretty remarkable place, Ken. I know you know that. You've been here for a long time. But it, the, we have these interesting weather patterns. Uh, it can be very different weather, as a lot of people know, up north versus down south. Mm-hmm. Because of that, the Merrimack tends to stay pretty okay in terms of its water levels because it, it's able to feed from lots of different places, some of which are getting more rain, some of which are getting less. So we tend to find that the Merrimack stays pretty steady, which is one of the reasons why more and more uh, communities are being attracted to it for water supply, especially to replace um, water supplies that have been impacted by contamination uh, in the southern part of the state. So how much water does it supply? What uh, what uh, towns are, are dependent on it? Yeah, so you can look, uh, there's there's withdrawals all up and down the Merrimack, basically from, from Concord. Uh, Concord doesn't get its water from the Merrimack. It gets it from the uh, Penacook res- Reservoir, and sometimes pumps from the Contucook, mm-hmm. which is a tributary to the Merrimack. Mm-hmm. But you see Manchester just put in a new uh, water withdrawal, hooks it. There's water withdrawals down uh, towards Nashua. So y- you do see that our population centers tend to be focused around that, and, and increasingly so uh, in the era of, of contamination. So obviously the cleanliness of the water water is a, uh, is of utmost uh, importance. Right. You know, it's been interesting. We've I've done a little research back into the past uh, looking at water quality. We have water quality data for the Merrimack that goes back into the uh, into the 30s. And what we see is because the Merrimack was basically an open sewer that over time uh, that water quality has gotten cleaner and cleaner and cleaner as we have put in wastewater treatment plants. So today, uh, the water is cleaner than it's been in 50 years. Wow. Wow. That, that, that is really something. And good to know. Uh, right. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure people are some, somewhat surprised to hear that. But, uh, but with modern technology the way that it is and things that can be done to, uh, to treat the water, then uh, I guess that shouldn't be too surprising. Right. You know, I think people my age, um, they remember as little kids their parents telling them not to go into the river. Right. Um, because sure. they could get tetanus, they could get other diseases, yeah. uh, because it was basically you know an, an open sewer and, and, and a lot of industrial waste as well. Mm. And not not as much these days. No, no, our, our problems are much different today. You know, there's a few uh, issues uh, in Manchester, south of Manchester, with uh, sewage releases during very large rainstorms. Mm-hmm. So that continues to be uh, a problem. This thing called combined sewage overflows. So that's a problem after rainstorms occasionally. Um, and then the, the new challenges really that we face are, are what we call non-point source pollution. That is all of the fertilizers and oils and greases and everything that comes off of the land throughout the watershed. And those are the, those are the things that we're tracking and where water quality is getting worse right now is, is actually salts. Really? Um, yeah. In all the, of the ocean? All, no, it's yeah, all of uh, the salts we're uh, putting on uh, our roads. Oh, Okay. Uh, we're actually able to track trends in the Merrimack River that show that the water quality is actually uh, worsening over the last 20 or 30 years in that particular category looking at salt. Ah, okay. I thought you were talking about salt water. <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, so so what uh, what can be done about that? What is being done about that? Yeah, a lot of people are concerned about this, and what we're finding is that uh, especially contractors are starting to try to use less salt. Our Department of, Envir- our Department of Transportation, uh, if you've been on 93 uh, South lately, you'll see that they're using brine, a liquid salt, in the winter. These are aspects that can help us reduce salt. Ah, 
Okay. Well, that's that's good to know. Uh, I guess there's only so much you can do, uh, but you're doing your best to combat that <laughs> that salt that salt uh, issue. So, how much swimming is actually done in the Merrimack River? Well, I do it a fair bit. Do you? Uh, so yeah. I don't know about yeah. other people, but yeah. no, it it is highly used as a recreational resource. Yeah. If you go down to the the conservation center here of the yep. Port Society's conservation right. center on Portsmouth Street on yeah. Portsmouth Street yeah. uh, if you go down on a on a Saturday afternoon in the summer you will see dozens and dozens of people either in boats or swimming or kayaking or just you know kind of hanging out kids in the water um, it's uh, it, it's a phenomenal resource you go up to the beach uh, in Boscoan, mm-hmm. um, you know, that area that has a ton yeah. of, of people that recreate there all up and down the Merrimack. I know a lot of people who swim. Um, I have a friend who does uh, sculling, um, you know, so rowing. Um, there's rowing clubs all up and down the river. People have, I don't think a lot of people recognize how much use uh, this pe- this river gets. Uh, and, and then in the winter, you know, fishing and, yeah. and wildlife um, are, are using it a fair bit. Yeah, no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, I, I see it all the time. Occasionally, I like to go and uh, sit by the Merrimack River behind the Everett Arena uh, in Congress and just sit there and, and watch the, the boating that goes on, some of the, the rowing that takes place, right. uh, you know, the skulls that are out there. Are, and uh, it's just a fascinating thing to watch, you know. And uh, so it is used a ton, as you pointed out, for recreational purposes. Right. And, and I think that that's, you know, one of the things that's really important is that um, people are re- rediscovering this. We have an effort to put in a Merrimack River Trail, mm-hmm. a greenway. So, you know, all of those things together really help people to appreciate this resource we have. And if they appreciate it, they want to protect it, which is which is really the goal. So what, what are the plans for the, the greenway? Uh, I'm not totally familiar with that, but I know that they're certainly uh, making some good progress, filling in the gaps. And uh, my understanding is that this is, you know, kind of a long-term goal, but they're they're getting closer and closer. I encourage you to bring a guest in on on that particular issue because yeah. it's uh, you know it's a monumental effort, but one that's really you know imagine being able to walk from Manchester to Franklin. That would be something. That would be. That would be really something. Ted Deers is with us, and Ted is the assistant director of the Water Division at the New Hampshire Department of Environmental Services. And we're talking about the Merrimack River today and how much it has meant to us over the years and will continue to mean to us in the future. And uh, it's getting cleaner by the minute, folks, right? Right, Right. Ted? Is that true? (laughs) Let's hope so. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Ted will be back, and uh, we will continue with Kale and Company after these words here on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester, and streaming 24 hours a day around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It is Kale and Company for a Wednesday. Kind of a strange week. Everybody thought yesterday was Monday and today, Tuesday, but no, it's actually a Wednesday. And uh, Ted Deers is with us. Ted is the Assistant Director of the Water Division at the New Hampshire Department of Environmental Services. We talked about drought and, uh, you know, how weather conditions are, are variable throughout the state from, from the uh, northernmost points to the uh, southern tier. So uh, how has drought impacted uh, the rivers and streams of the Granite State? Yeah, so thanks, Ken. Appreciate it. The, um, so where we're at at this point is that we've had a drought that started pretty much at the end of June 
and has continued to intensify throughout the summer. And it really has worked from south to north. So the south, south, southern part of the state, especially the seacoast area, was very, very dry very early. Um, and then it's kind of worked its way up through the state. And it's important for people to realize when we talk about drought in New Hampshire, there's a couple of different really important aspects to it. There's a surface water drought, which is what we see. We see it in our, our lawns. We see it in our rivers, in the streams. And then there's a groundwater drought. And that's the part that we don't see unless your well goes dry. So it's uh, what we've been watching over the course of this year is really two, those two droughts sort of developing in different areas of the state in different ways. The, the surface water drought uh, intensified very early on in the summer uh, in the sea, in the seacoast area, mm. whereas that groundwater drought t- took a little bit longer and is interesting in that it really magnified itself in the uh, Connecticut River Valley, which is unusual. That's a place that usually has better precipitation. So what we've seen over the course of this summer is this intensification. And so people are asked, well, why are we in drought? Well, the, we're in drought for two reasons. Uh, one reason is that we didn't get the snowpack that we had hoped for. Right. So up in the North Country, and some of those areas, uh, the lakes region, that's really influential over drought is whether or not we get the snowpack and when it melts. Uh, an early melt is not good for, for groundwater and, uh, and, and bringing that water into where it needs to be. Then we also have not gotten kind of what we expect during the, during the summer, which is this every week or two, uh, a couple day rainstorm or a couple inches here and there. We just didn't get that. Uh, especially starting in June and then really over the last, uh, until this last rainstorm. So the North Country is still looking pretty good, which is totally different than two years ago. Because in two years ago, we were also in drought. And actually for the last three summers, we've been in drought. Mm-hmm. And there, the, the North Country was the hardest hit. Here, it's really the Massachusetts border and the Southeast that's really uh, the most hard hit. And this this is, gets back to this idea of diversity of weather and ecosystems that we have here in our tiny little state, which is, which is pretty amazing for uh, such a small place that we do have that kind of diversity. Have, have we seen more drought conditions over the last uh, 20 years than we had seen before that? Uh, absolutely, Ken. The, the, really, the, since the 1960s, uh, the ni- mid-1960s, 65 to 66, we had a super deep drought. That was the deepest ever recorded, you know, sort of in human uh, European memory. And so that is really the, you know, sort of the benchmark by which we measure. The next really big one we had after that was in 2002, and then 2012, 2016, into 17, and then 2021, and now 22. So you can see this increasing frequency um, which is, uh, you know, that's it's what we've has been predicted um, as the as temperatures get warmer. That has been predicted that we would get more droughts. Um, we're sort of seeing that. Um, and the idea is, I think now that we're seeing this, it needs we all need to become more resilient. We all need to become more resilient to those droughts. How do we deal with them is really, I think, should be at the at, uh, at the forefront of what people are thinking about for water planning. And what is the best way to deal with it? So there's a number of different ways. Certainly uh, on my own lawn, I don't water it. Um, I have a little tiny lawn, that, and then I've landscaped around it. And I, you know, when I had little kids around, I took them to the park. Uh, so you know, that was the way that I kind of dealt with the outside watering. When you think about residential watering, most of the water that we put on 
uh, most of the water that we use in the summer mm. is actually being put on our lawns. So we spend all this money to pump it out of the ground, treat it, yeah. send it through our pipes, and then we and then we spill it on the ground. So it, it, it's a it's a little bit of a weird thing that we do, but that's where most of our water use goes. Um, and then just getting people to conserve. But from a community perspective, looking at a diversity of water supplies, and this is what big you know large and small communities are starting to do, making sure that they have groundwater when groundwater is plentiful and surface water when surface water is plentiful. And by doing that, you can become much more resilient. Are there a number of uh, water restrictions in the state right now? There are. There are yeah. about a quarter of a million people that are under water restrictions right now in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, a challenge for certainly that odd even watering or even watering bans. Some communities have watering bans on right, right. now. Right. So how many, what, what percentage of the people in New Hampshire are well dependent? It's about 50-50. Really? Yeah, yeah. That so much? Yeah, it's about 50-50. Yeah. Uh, depends on, the, uh, on uh, how you count. but. Yeah. Yeah, about 50% are dependent on their own wells. Uh, they're self-supplied. That's one of the things that we've seen is that a lot of people's dug wells have gone dry. So a lot of people have had to get out and, uh, and drill. The drillers have been extremely busy uh, over the last few years, catching up uh, both with the, the increased development uh, that's happened because uh, people want to be here yeah. in this great state, as well as the, um, just this, this pent-up demand from people wanting to deepen and improve their wells because uh, of these droughts. Well, you mentioned uh, earlier uh, in our show today about the salt contamination that's right. a, a danger. Uh, what is being done about that? Yeah, so, you know, when you think about it, it 20 or 30 years ago, if you walked uh, on the sidewalks uh, to a store, you know, it didn't crunch under your feet. But now it, there's sort of this expectation yeah. uh, that, that the sidewalk will crunch uh, in the winter. If the sidewalk crunches, it means you're using too much salt. This is the, the part that we're trying to get across to people is that we have estimates that we're currently using 25 to 50% more salt hmm. than is actually needed to protect public health and public safety. So this is the, really the issue. And so we have a program called the Green Snow Pro, uh, which is a, a certification program for contractors that uh, teaches them how to use less salt. Uh, how to use the right amount of salt in the right place at the right time. We're not saying that you shouldn't use salt at all because obviously winter here happens. Yeah. And so we, don't, we want people to be safe. But the, other, the big issue is using the right amount, the right place. So we encourage people at home, look, look online. Look at how much salt you're actually supposed to put down. It's basically one salt uh, rock uh, from your rock salt about every three to four inches. That's all you need. And what's really important is for people to realize is that just a chunk of rock on ice doesn't do anything. It needs to get into solution. Salt doesn't work until it gets into solution. So, you know, uh, using some brine products, some of those kinds of things are really important. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure there will be more products developed in the future to uh, replace salt. Yeah, we're yeah. starting to see that. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's an issue now because it is getting into our, our water supply in some cases. Yeah, the, if you talk to the good folks in Merrimack, uh, the Merrimack Village District there, they just lost a well because of salt. Mm. So, and you know, a, a brand new municipal well can run between all of the testing and permitting and drilling and everything else, can run a million dollars. So that's a big deal uh, yeah. for a small community to lose that kind of a resource not to mention the fact that you have to go find another resource. Right, absolutely. So, well, you mentioned uh, earlier in our, our show today about the fishing on the Merrimack River. 
someone once told me they, they caught uh, Atlantic salmon uh, sure. in New Hampshire at, at some point. I think it was in the Sewell's Falls uh, area. That's not going to happen. Uh, anymore, or, well, or you're not going to rule it out? Huh? I'm not going to rule it out. Nature, uh, you know, nature's resilient. Uh, anybody who watched Jurassic Park, right? They know right, that, right? right? So, the um, the they do have fish ladders. There are salmon that pass through the fish ladders. There's uh, you know, there's herring. There's river herring. There's other an- up shad that go through those fish ladders. There's also eels um, and lamprey eels that make it through. There's a lot of life. Uh, in in that river, and because of the the work of our Fish and Wildlife Service and our New Hampshire Fish and Game Department, they've been very very careful at trying to uh, get those fish ladders and get other aspects of that to be able to have a healthy fish population, as well as stocking uh, you know rainbow, tr- rainbow trout into the river. Um, and you're starting to see you know other some warm water uh, species that that people like to catch as well. So it, it, is a, it is an interesting place. I went electrofishing one time on a very small tributary to the Merrimack, only a few inches deep. You wouldn't think that a single fish was in there. Right, uh, yeah. and, and if anybody's not seen electrofishing, look at a video on electrofishing. It's pretty cool because they have a, a wire that follows behind, and they shock just a mild shock, and the fish come floating up, and you catch them and count them and such. Wow. But um, there was an— So what, what do you catch electrofishing? Well, in a tiny little stream yeah. like that, yeah. you, the, the, it was— it was dozens and dozens and dozens of fish, and there was a, a an eel, uh, an American eel that was probably two inches thick and probably two feet long. Uh, you would never know was sitting in that little river. Wow, it, it is amazing uh, what we have here in the Granite State. You never know what you're going to find. Absolutely. But uh, Ted Deers, I want to thank you very much for coming in this morning, and uh, it's been fascinating. It really has, and uh, I know we have some great resources here uh, in New Hampshire, and thanks to you guys at the uh, Department of Environmental Services. You're keeping them as clean as as humanly possible. Well, thanks, Ken. It's been a terrific uh, experience to be here with you this morning. Well, thank you so much. Ted Deers, Assistant Director, Water Division at the New Hampshire Department of Environmental Services. Uh, we'll, we'll have you back for sure and, uh, and talk more about the mighty Merrimack and other tributaries uh, in, the, uh, in the Granite State. Appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Thanks. We'll be back. Kale & Company continues here on WKXL. 1450 AM, 103.9 in the Capital Region, 1019 in Manchester and beyond, and streaming around the world and around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, and uh, hopefully we've been able to make connections with uh, Taylor Mattis of New London. Taylor, are you with us? Taylor, come in if you can hear me. Well, apparently we have not. <laughs> so I, I don't know whether uh, where the issue is, uh, but uh, apparently uh, Taylor cannot hear us. Or uh, Taylor, can, are you there? I can hear something in the background clicking every once in a while, but uh, apparently it's not uh, Taylor, uh, which is unfortunate because we would love to have him on the show. But uh, there's either an issue on this end or, or his end, and uh, we're not able to, uh, to make connections uh, at the moment. And hopefully we will. We still have about 10 minutes left in the show today, but uh, we will do our, di- our best to get uh, Taylor from uh, New London on the line with us just about to uh, turn pro. Well, uh, electronic cigarette maker Juul Labs, uh, that's J-U-U-L, 
will pay nearly $440 million to settle a two-year investigation by 33 states into the marketing of its high-nicotine vaping products, which have long been blamed for sparking a national surge in teenage vaping. Connecticut uh, Attorney General William Tong announced the deal on Tuesday on behalf of the states, uh, plus Puerto Rico, which joined together in 2020 to uh, probe Juul's early promotions and claims about the safety and benefits of its, uh, of its technology as a smoking alternative. The settlement resolves one of the biggest legal threats facing the beleaguered company, which still faces nine separate lawsuits from other states that are suing the company. Additionally, Juul faces hundreds of uh, personal suits brought on behalf of teenagers and others who say they became addicted to the company's vaping products. The state investigation found that Juul marketed its e-cigarettes to underage teens with launch parties, product giveaways, and ads and social media posts using youthful models, according to a statement. All right, let's try this again, Ken. Right, let's try it one more time. Taylor, are Ta- you there? Taylor Mattis, come in if you can hear us. Hello. Hello, Taylor. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Sorry about all the difficulty we've had uh, in reaching you today. But uh, I was just giving folks a little background that uh, former uh, Kearsage Regional High School standout. And uh, now that you've signed a contract to play pro basketball uh, in the Republic of Malta, uh, which is an island nation 50 miles south of Italy in the Mediterranean Sea, you must be pretty excited about it. Yeah, I'm very excited for the opportunity for sure. Well, when did you, uh, let's start with a little background here. We still have about uh, nine or ten minutes left. So uh, when did you start your basketball journey? How, how young were you when you started uh, to, to enjoy basketball? Oh, man, probably like third or fourth grade, somewhere around there, so like eight or nine years old. So when you were growing up, uh, did you follow the NBA? Oh, yeah, I was a big-time uh, Celtics fan. I grew up watching the Celtics-Lakers finals with Paul Pierce and Kobe Bryant, all those guys. Well, take us uh, take us through your time at, at Kearsage Regional High School where uh, you were a big part of the uh, Cougars' uh, first title in school history. Uh, what, what do you remember about that title run? Um, yeah, so... I remember ever since I got there as a freshman, you know, I was uh, able to play on varsity for all four years, and uh, we were able to change the culture a little bit um, because I remember as a kid, they uh, had a lot of losing seasons. They're kind of just waiting and waiting. Um, But, yeah, I remember that was my junior year. Um, Me and my teammates, we had a very successful year. Um, Coach Camp implemented a great system, and we were able to just get hot at the right time and just keep winning, um, especially around playoff time. Well, I know you were the uh, Division Three Player of the Year in uh, 2017, and they moved you up to Division Two, and you were the Player of the Year in uh, 2018 as well, yep. and uh, all of which led you to uh, Bowling Green State University in 2018. And uh, what was your experience like uh, at Bowling Green? Uh, my experience at Bowling Green was awesome. 
Um, it's a pretty good Division One school um, coming out of a small high school and public high school in New Hampshire and then just going to Bowling Green and being able to play against people from all over, you know, the country. Um, and then just being able to travel, playing big-time venues, um, get new experience from new coaches. It was a, overall, it was a really great experience um, and definitely helped develop me more as a basketball player. Uh, two years at Bowling Green, and then you decided to return to the Granite State and uh, play a couple of yeah. seasons uh, in Durham at the University of New Hampshire. What was uh, the experience like uh, there? Um, the experience at UNH, it was good. It was great um, being around my friends and family. Um, that meant a lot to me. Um, bas- Basketball-wise, it was solid. It wasn't as um, good as the, the Bowling Green level, but it was still good experience, got to play in a new conference, got to play against other teams. So, you know, the experience was good. Well, this is this is very exciting. You have signed a, a pro contract uh, with a team in Malta. I was talking uh, while we were uh, trying to establish communication with you about, you know, there aren't too many uh, professional basketball players uh uh, that have made it from uh, from New Hampshire. We talked about Duncan Robinson and Matt Bonner, of course. Uh, so tell, tell us about how this uh, contract uh, came about with uh, with the team in, in Malta. Yeah, so after this past season, I had a sports agent, a FIBA sports, sports agent reach out to me, and, you know, he said that uh, he saw some potential in me to play in some leagues over there. So I signed with him, and ever since I signed with him, he has been reaching out to teams and coaches from all over Europe mostly and just trying to find a good fit for me. And then he reached out to the Malta coach, and the Malta coach liked what he had to say about me and then kind of just took off from there. So what team will you be playing for over in in Malta? Uh, The team is called Bupa Luxel. And it's in Pembroke, Malta. In Pembroke. Okay. Well, we have one of those around here, so it'll be easy to remember, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the level? What are you told that the level of competition is there in that league? Um, it's not one of the top leagues in Europe, but it is It's the top league in Malta, and it's a good league to start off as as a rookie because if you prove that you can compete at this level, then you can get a, you know, another contract in, you know, one of the bigger countries like Germany or Italy or Spain or Greece. So I think it's a perfect fit for my rookie year. Um, and then, you know, to see where it goes from there after this season. Taylor Mattis is with us, a resident uh, of New London. Have you visited uh, Malta as yet? Have you been there? No, nope, I've actually, I've never even been to Europe. So it's going to be my first time. It'll be your first experience, huh? That's so so that, that'll be intriguing. What do you hear about, uh, you know, the, the facilities, uh, the town you're going to be in? Uh, have you heard anything about, uh, uh, you know, th- those uh, those considerations? Um, yeah, I've heard it's a beautiful place. Um, you know, I've done some research on the culture. Um, I've heard that people are really nice. They're welcoming. They have a lot of nice beaches in Malta. Um as far as facilities, I'll have everything I need. I'll have a weight room to work out in whenever I want to. And then, obviously, team gym. 
where we will have practices. So I'll have all the resources I need to keep developing as a basketball player. You know, I, I've heard that the, the schedule, the basketball schedule uh, in Europe is not as rigorous as like an NBA schedule. It's not like an 82-game schedule. Have you heard anything about uh, the scheduling over there? Yeah, it's it's about like half. It's like 30 yeah. to 40 games, which yeah. is, uh, like you said, it's not as not as bad as the NBA where you're playing every other day and, you know, traveling like crazy. So, yeah, not as... Not as rough as an NBA schedule. So about half of what uh, the NBA is, but uh, quite similar to a, a college schedule, really. Yeah, no, very similar with the amount of games played. Yeah, and, and uh, so so that's good. Not as much wear and tear on the body, and uh, not playing back to back nights or uh, you know four games and five nights or whatever the case uh, uh, might be. So what, exactly. what what is your goal, Taylor? Is that is that goal to to get to the NBA? Um, my goal is to just, you know, work as hard as I can, you know, every day and just make the most of all my opportunities. And I just know good things will come no matter if it's NBA, a higher league in Europe. I just want to push myself to the best of my abilities, um, and just have no regrets because if I do all that, then well, that's all I can ask about myself. Well, that's very true, and uh, I know you graduated from UNH with a degree in uh, communication. So, uh, any any thoughts about? And I know you know basketball. You're still very early in your career, but any any thoughts about what you'd like to do uh, post basketball? Um, not a hundred percent sure. I have a lot of interest. Yeah. Um, it'd be great to stay involved with sports somehow. Sure. So, I don't know. Ideally, something in sports, but. Definitely have to look into that a lot more. Absolutely. Well, Taylor Matters, thanks for being with us today, and uh, we wish you the, the best of luck. And uh, you know, keep us posted, and uh, we want to follow your progress uh, in Malta. Okay. okay. Thank you very much for having me. Nice All time. right. Our pleasure. Taylor Matters of New London, heading to Malta, the Isle of Malta, to play professional basketball. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks to Ted Deers in the first part of the program from the Department of Environmental Services here in New Hampshire talking about the Merrimack River and beyond. We will join you tomorrow. Kale and Company right here, WKXL and NHTalkRadio.com.